Let's open up our Bibles now to Romans chapter 7. As we have been working our way through this glorious epistle and took a little one-week detour last Sunday because I wasn't sure if I'd be able to see in the morning after my eye surgery. Uh, Then I woke up first thing Sunday morning last week and my eyes felt so good and I was like, man, I should be preaching. I was excited for this passage. But... God's providence. Here we are this morning, Romans chapter 7. We are picking up where we left off two weeks ago, which brings us to verse 14, and we'll be finishing out the rest of the chapter from here, which, if you've been with us throughout this whole book, you know is a massive chunk of verses for us to get through. So we are progressing through. Hear the word of the Lord now from Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for this good gift that you have given us, that through your word, by your spirits working our hearts might live, that we might have eyes to see you, ears to hear your voice, that we would be transformed into the likeness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word this morning. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage of Scripture that we are looking at this morning is a complicated text. In fact, this has been one of, over the centuries, the most controversial texts in all of the book of Romans, which is saying something because we haven't even got to Romans 9 yet, but that's in there. This has been the center of much controversy, and the, the controversy on this passage centers not so much on what is being said, but on who it's being said about. Who, who is this passage talking about? And interpreters have passionately disagreed about that. Who is Paul referencing here in this passage? What kind of person is being described here? Is this a Christian that's being described? Is Paul describing himself? 
In the present tense, the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church at Rome, this is my current situation, or is he describing perhaps an unconverted person, himself before his conversion? And there has been much disagreement about this. In fact, I was just texting with somebody uh, from the church that couldn't be here today, and they said, just out of curiosity, I'm going to listen to the sermon later, but who do you think we're talking about here in this passage? <laughs> the amazing thing with this is if you look at the commentators throughout the generations uh, and you have this list of people like I do that you really love and respect and are kind of your go-to, um, they don't all agree with each other. And so that means you have to disagree with someone. In fact, my response was, with fear and trembling, I disagree with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this passage which is never a good thing to do. So, some say Paul is still speaking, and we saw this uh, two weeks ago, earlier in, um, earlier in chapter 7. Paul was speaking about himself before his conversion. This is what I was like before my conversion. And some say Paul's continuing on with that here. He is talking about unbelievers here. He's talking about non-Christians and and what they are like. They say this because of some of the things Paul says in this passage as we read it. Verse 18, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Well, in chapter 6, he said the believer is free from sin. In verse 20, he says, sin dwells in me. He says in verse 23 that he is captive to the law at sin that dwells within my members. In verse 24, he goes all the way and calls himself a wretched man. So they look at these things and they say, Paul must be talking about a non-Christian here. He must be looking at his life before his conversion and saying, this is who I was. This is what was going on in me. Is that the case? Is Paul talking about an unconverted person? I don't believe so. And I'll tell you why in a bit. Another popular view, though, is that Paul's talking about a person who's been converted but is speaking about what they might call a carnal Christian, fleshly Christian. They get that from the word that Paul uses for flesh. He's speaking about a carnal, fleshly Christian. A carnal Christian in that definition is one who professes Christ as Lord but still lives a life of disobedience. They are still deeply entrenched in sin. So we would call this non-lordship salvation. Sometimes you hear people say this, uh, Jesus is my Savior, but I haven't yet made him my Lord. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here either. And the reason I don't think Paul's talking about a carnal Christian is because that kind of Christian doesn't exist. That's not a real thing. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. That is an unconverted person that we're describing. Jesus is my Savior, but not my Lord is not the mark of a Christian. That is a mark of a non-Christian. There aren't two stages in the Christian life. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. And all that we've seen in the book of Romans up to this point should have made that abundantly clear. We are either in that pit, cemented into our solidarity, in death, in sin, in rebellion, under condemnation, in Adam, or we have been broken out of that and cemented, hidden in Christ. Those are the only two stages. If you are in Christ, you submit to him. So who's Paul talking about here? I believe Paul is describing himself in his present condition. As I write this letter to you, Romans, he's describing the condition here of the mature Christian. 
This is not the abnormal experience of just some weak Christians that Paul is describing. This is the normal experience for all Christians. Paul is writing here as one who is honestly measuring himself by the perfect standard of God's holy righteousness. Paul's lamenting his sin. Paul is longing for holiness as he looks at himself in comparison, not with the people around him, because if he compared himself by the people around him, Paul would have reason to say, listen, I'm doing really good. I'm doing better than all of you, by the way. No, he is comparing himself. He is holding up himself against God's perfect standard of righteousness, and it causes him to lament his sin. So what makes me think that? That is who Paul's talking about. Uh, The first is no small thing, and that is there is a change in the language when we come to verse 14. Paul has been using past tense language, and then we get to 14, and Paul transitions to present tense language. Previously in this chapter, Paul said things like, I knew, I was, I died, I was deceived. Now, from here on out for the rest of chapter 7, it's I am, I find, I see, I delight, I keep doing. Second, it's because of the thing Paul says about how he feels about his sin. Only genuine believers hate sin. Verse 15, I do the very thing I hate. Verse 19, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Paul hated his sin. He wanted total freedom from it. Paul has shown us in the early chapters of Romans that is not the case for the unbeliever. The unbeliever does not agonize over his sin like this. Only a genuine believer has this kind of sensitivity to sin. R.C. Sproul says an unredeemed person might hate the consequences of sin. They don't have genuine remorse for having offended God. Only the convicted sinner has that. Only the Christian has that. Non-believers, of course, hate the consequences of sin, and you could talk to the most recalcitrant, sinful atheist, and they might have areas in their life with Scripture clearly identifies as sin, and they say, I hate these things. I wish I didn't do them. I feel bound to them. I wish I didn't do them. But why do they hate them? Not because they violated the, the righteous standards of a holy God because they have sinned against him. No, they hate them because there are consequences here and now in their lives that they just don't like. No, it's only converted people who have this kind of hatred of sin. And the truth is, the more mature you become in Christ, I trust you are finding this in your life, the more the Holy Spirit works in your heart, the more you read of the Word of God, the more sensitive you become to your sin, the more clearly you see it. I can tell you now, as an almost 45-year-old man, that there are things that 10 years ago, I thought were perfectly fine in my life that I now cannot tolerate in my life. Things that I've had to cut out, further pruning that has had to come, and that is because the longer we are in Christ, the more our sensitivity to sin increases. And so that's why by the very end of Paul's life, when he writes to young Pastor Timothy, he refers to himself as the foremost of sinners. In Paul's own eyes, as he holds himself up, and there's no debate about who Paul's talking about in that moment, As Paul holds his life up to the perfect standard of Christ's righteousness, he says, I'm as bad as it gets. Third then, a genuine believer has an abiding love for God's law. Unbelievers don't have this love for the law of God. Only believers had this. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. 
In other words, at the very core of who I am, I delight in the law of God. That is a mark. Delighting in the law of God is a mark of someone who loves the lawgiver. No one else delights in the law. There are plenty of laws in this country that I obey that I don't delight in. Psalm 1 describes the difference between the godly and the ungodly like this. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks, not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is the difference between the righteous, the godly, and the ungodly. Delight in the law of God is a mark of a genuine Believer, this, this longing for holy living in obedience to the law is a sure mark of one who has been truly converted. And so this testimony that we're looking at from Paul, I believe, is, is the testimony of a believer who is actively engaged in the battle. Actively engaged in the battle that every one of us must be engaged in, the battle for holy living, the battle for obedience to the law, the battle for righteousness in our own lives. And this, this is a battle that every Christian must be engaged in. This exact same battle that Paul is describing here. And so our conversion doesn't end this battle. Our conversion begins this battle. We don't even join this battle until the moment of our conversion. We're not fighting against sin prior to that. So we'll see what Paul has to tell us here in these verses. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. Paul says here that the law is spiritual. In other words, it comes to us from the Spirit. It doesn't come from man. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And since it comes from the Holy Spirit, it's good. In other words, the law is not our enemy. The law is our friend. The law is a good gift to us from God for our good. He says, the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, again, he told us in chapter 6 that Christians aren't bound to sin anymore. Sin's not our master. And so we have been delivered from, he's told us, the domination of sin where it controls us. We have to sin. We only sin. We have been delivered from the penalty of sin. We are no longer under the condemnation of God for our sin. But all of us are still bound to the presence of sin. We're free from its domination. We are free from its penalty, but its presence persists. In other words, we still live in these fleshly bodies. The consequences of sin are playing out in us every time you wake up in the morning and you're like, did I just get injured in my sleep last night? Which is a thing that started happening to me about the time I hit 40. The fact that we have funerals means the, or the, the earthly consequences of sin are still playing out. And we still live in these fleshly bodies that are prone to sin, that actually have urges for sin. The ESV study Bible makes a good point here. Although Christians are free from the condemnation of the law, sin nonetheless continues to dwell within. And all genuine Christians, along with Paul, should be profoundly aware of how far they fall short of God's absolute standard of righteousness. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about holding ourselves up, not against other people, but against God's perfect standard of holiness 
and seeing ourselves rightly in light of that. You, you can see how seriously Paul takes it from the seriousness of his language that he uses in this passage. He says, I don't understand my own actions. This word understand is a, is a, is a, is a word of, of deep intimate knowledge of someone or something. It's the word that scripture uses when the Old Testament is translated into the Greek and the Septuagint. It's the word that is used to describe things like Abraham knowing his wife and her conceiving. That's the word here. It is an intimate, deep knowledge of something. And so that, that connotates strong emotion. And Paul says, I don't understand what I'm doing. In other words, I don't I don't love what I'm doing. I don't have affection for what I'm doing. This is not the product of the new heart that I have give, give, uh, been given. In fact, these sins are incompatible with the new heart that I've been given. I don't understand what I'm doing. And we know that that's what he means because of the way he finishes that sentence. I don't understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law that it's good. Now, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. We hear Paul say this. I don't think we would let our kids get away, get away with this if they tried this. They, they broke a rule at home. They did something they knew they weren't supposed to do, and they're like, it wasn't me. There's this other entity within me that did it, so... No need to punish me. <laughs> We'd say, yeah, I'm not buying that. Is Paul excusing his sin here? Is he saying it's sin, sin's fault, not mine? No, of course that's not what he's doing. He's lamenting his sin. He's taking responsibility for his sin. He's admitting something much greater. It's not just this is what my hands have done. He's admitting that sin within him at times is controlling his flesh. He is acting out of the sin that is within him. He is admitting that he is sinful, that, that sin remains within him. It's the very opposite of the thing we saw with Adam and Eve in the garden, our first parents, who did that exact thing that the kids might try. Adam, of course, when God confronts him, says what? Guilty. I take responsibility for this. This is on me. No, that's not what he said. It was Eve. God, it was that woman you gave me. So not only is it her fault, God, I mean, you gave me a woman. This is on you in some way. She made me do it. And what does Eve say? Oh, it was the serpent. The serpent made me do it. Paul's doing the very opposite of that. Paul is saying, in effect, this is my fault. This is on me. I have sin living in me. And so while the new me, the new creature in Christ, wants to do the right things, longs for holiness, sometimes the person that I no longer am, the old me, my flesh, rises up within me and gives in to the very things that I now hate. Paul's taking full responsibility for this. He is living in this theological tension between who he is in Christ, clothed in righteousness, seated in the heavenlies, hidden in Christ, and his old sinful flesh that is still bound to him, sometimes controlling his actions, constantly waging war against the new spirit that he has been given by God. Do you know what that feels like? 
Sin's constantly trying to do two things to the believer. One, it wants to deceive the mind of the believer. And secondly, it wants to control the body of the believer. There's no sense in which sin is content to just lay back and have one little segment of your mind. It wants all of you. It wants your mind. It wants your body. It wants all of you. That's what sin is trying to do to the believer. What about the unbeliever? Well, the unbeliever's mind is already bound by sin. Sin doesn't have to fight to deceive the mind of the unbeliever. They live in deception. They live in blindness. Their body is already under the control and domination of sin. But believers have been liberated from that bondage, and yet there is a battle that wages within us. There is a pull within us, a pull against sin, trying to drag us down trying to bring us back into the old ways of the flesh that are incompatible with the new hearts and the new minds we've been given, with the new creation we have been made. That's why Paul warns Christians in the previous chapter, in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. We have been free from sin... But sin is constantly trying to lure us back into giving ourselves back to it, into placing ourselves again under its domination. Paul writes to the Colossian believers in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And he says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. This is what Paul's describing here, a battle. It is an active battle against these desires of the sinful flesh that rise up and try to drag us back into a life of wickedness and unrighteousness. And it is an active battle to pursue the right things. Taking these things off and putting them away. Taking these things and putting them on. It is an active battle against sin which must be fought every single day. There's no standing still in this battle. There's only advance and retreat. We must fight this battle every day. Although we've been delivered from sin's total domination, we've been freed from our condemnation under sin, we must never rest in our battle with the flesh. Verse 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That's why. Your flesh is not neutral. I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. The more mature a believer becomes, the more they are aware of this truth and its reality. It's the very immature Christian who is holding on to any kind of idea that they were once a moral person, 
a good person. That wickedness is not just, just waiting to rise up within them. I've talked to people before who just, I'll talk to them about a particular area of their life where I think there's some danger of compromise, danger of temptation, danger of sin, and they'll say, oh, I'm just not tempted in that way. I know a lot of people fall that way. That is the mark of a very immature Christian at best. The more mature we are, the more we realize I'm capable of anything. Our flesh is never going to accomplish one good thing because nothing good dwells within our flesh. And, and again, when Paul says flesh here in these verses, he means his old sinful fallen nature. Nothing good lies within that. Nothing good lies within that flesh. Steve Lawson says it's completely antithetical, the flesh is, to everything that is holy, righteous, and good. Our old flesh is the very opposite, namely that which is wicked, vile, evil, and carnal, and it is still in us, even as believers. Now again, Christ has conquered the old flesh. We've been made a new creation. That flesh has been crucified, but we live in these bodies still. And as long as we do, it is going to be creeping up. It is going to be trying to deceive, trying to pull us back. How is it that David, a man after God's own heart, could commit adultery in the way that he did? Commit murder in the way that he did? How could Abraham lie on a couple of occasions and try to give his wife away to another man? How could Moses commit murder? How could Peter deny the Lord on the very night of his crucifixion within earshot? How could Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit during a church service? Well, this is how. What Paul's telling us is how. It's because as believers, our sinful flesh remains in us, whispering to us, shouting to us, urging us to sin so that every single one of us is capable of those exact kind of sins, those grievous sins that we read about in Scripture, those things we see other people do and we go, how could anyone do that? Friend, you're capable of that. Again, verse 18, he says, I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I don't do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Again, Paul is clearly speaking of himself in the present here. As a believer, I keep on doing these things. He has been made into a new creation with new desires, new affections, new love for God, a new desire to obey, a new hatred of sin, but he doesn't always do what's in his heart. There is still lurking within him the capacity for evil. Now, evil no longer controls him, but it's ever-present. It's always there. It would be naive of us to think if that were true of the Apostle Paul that it wouldn't somehow be true of us. I can tell you this with 100% certainty. You're not a better Christian than Paul. You're not a more moral person than Paul was. Your righteousness does not exceed the Apostle Paul's righteousness. It is naive, destructive, dangerous. It is, in fact, a yielding to the whispering voice of sin when we think that we might not fall into temptation and sin. 
Verse 20 says, now if I do what I want, what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It's what he just said in verse 17. It's so important that he says it again right here in verse 20. Even though Paul is the one doing the sinning, it's not the true Paul. It's not the new man that Christ has created out of Paul. It's in fact contrary to that new nature that Paul has been given. It, it, it flies in the face of the new heart, the new mind, the new creation that he is in Christ. And Paul pictures the flesh as this monster that's living inside of him. It never leaves. It never stops talking. It never stops whispering in his ear. It never stops reaching and grabbing and pulling and dragging. This is the continual battle for the believer with our old, fallen, sinful flesh. Now again, we're not bound by we're we're not bound to sin and only sin. We've been freed from its domination. You don't have to sin. You don't have to listen to sin's voice. You don't have to yield to sin's demands. Sin no longer has that kind of power over you, but it is there and you you know that this is true. All you have to do is look at your life. All you have to do is look at the battle that you go through in that battle for righteousness. And if there's not a battle for righteousness, I would say you should strongly consider whether you've been converted. Whether there's no battle because you haven't been given that new heart. You haven't been made into a new creation. You haven't been freed from sin's domination. And so you don't feel the battle. You're just dominated. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. Again, Paul's saying something here that an unbeliever cannot say. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But even as he says that, he is well aware of a war that is being waged in the very members of his body. And he knows that this war is going to rage on for as long as he lives in this earthly body of flesh. As long as we live in these earthly bodies, sin will war against us. We are never going to reach a point of sinless perfectionism where where that voice has been totally silenced, where sin's allure has been totally taken away from us, and we're never tempted to give in again. We will not reach a state of sinless perfection in this life. As long as we are in the body of flesh, this temptation will persist. If that wasn't true, you would never die. The fact that you get sick and die is proof that this battle rages on. And will rage on. It culminates in this powerful exclamation in verse 24. As Paul considers these things, as he laments his sin, as he looks at the battle he is in with with sin, as he looks at the, the fact that this battle is going to rage on for as long as he is alive in this earthly body, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now most Christians today would just say Paul's being too hard on himself. Paul, ease up. We all struggle. Maybe he just needs to see a Christian counselor or read a a popular Christian book about how he needs to wash his face and see himself as 
the perfect little creation that God made him to be. Just needs to love himself more. He just needs to have better self-esteem. No, Paul doesn't need any of those things. Paul knows the truth. Paul knows himself. Paul is looking at himself, not in the light of the mirror. He's looking at himself in the light of Christ's righteousness, of the holiness of God. Notice he says, the wretched man that I am. He doesn't look at these things and exclaim, wretched man that I was. How could I have been like that? Bound in sin, wanting to do, evil, do good, but doing evil instead. No, he says, wretched man that I am. He is deeply aware of the reality and the weight of sin right now in his life, and he is grieved by it. He hates it. This is a mark of true Christian maturity. The hatred of sin. Not minimizing sin. In fact, seeing sin for the wicked rebellion that it really is. Scottish commentator Robert Haldane says, men perceive themselves to be sinners in direct proportion as they have previously discovered the holiness of God and his law. Those who minimize their sin, those who make it something small and not really that important, who don't grieve over their sin, have no concept of the holiness of God and what that really means. For God to be holy. In fact, of all the attributes of God, of all the ways, all the, the words that could be used and applied to God, this is the only one that gets repeated three times. God is not just holy, he is holy, holy, holy. This is serious. When we minimize our sin, it proves that we have no understanding of that at all. Believers sin. Paul did. The rest of us do too. But God's people hate their sin. God's people seek to put their sin to death. God's people are not content in their sin. And, and although for believers the condemnation for sin has been fully atoned for on the cross of Christ, sin has devastating consequences. Devastating consequences in this life, doesn't it? Well, what happens when a believer sins? What happens when a Christian loses the battle with sin? John MacArthur in his book, Freedom from Sin, gives 12 things. I think they're helpful. First, we grieve the Holy Spirit. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us. Second, our prayers might go unanswered. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 3, where he tells a husband, don't be harsh with your wife because your prayers will be hindered. It's possible for sin to be a thing that makes God not listen to you when you pray. Is that terrifying? Third, our lives may disqualify us from productive ministry. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. We're living in an age where it seems like people are dropping like flies. I feel like every week I'm hearing of another ministry, another person in ministry, many of whom have excellent theology who are being disqualified one after another after another. And it is not charisma, it is not talent, it is not even the right interpretation and the ability to expound on Scripture that makes one fit for ministry. If you have been disqualified because of unrighteousness, you are unfit. It doesn't matter how gifted you are. 
Sadly, it seems churches and, and, and Christians are eager to keep putting these people back on the platform after they sin in the most grievous kind of ways. But Paul himself is saying, I discipline my body so that I will not be disqualified. Fourth, our worship becomes unpleasing to God. God is pleased with the worship of the righteous. Psalm 33, 1 says, praise befits the upright. Fifth, God's blessing may be withheld from us. Jeremiah 5, 25, your iniquities have turned blessings away. Your sins have kept good from you. 2 John 1, verse 8, the unrepentant person, he says, forfeits full reward. Fifth, we cease to experience joy in salvation. David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51 is such a beautiful gift to us. To hear this prayer, how how can David have done the things he did and been a man after God's own heart? Read Psalm 51. There's no minimizing there. But what's one of the things he prays for in his confession of sin? He asks the Lord, restore to him the joy of salvation. Sin robs us of that. Hebrews 12 tells us we experience God's discipline when we sin. Our spiritual growth is hindered when we sin. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you're not ready. You yourselves are still of the flesh. Sin stifles our spiritual growth. Ninth, our service for Christ is limited. 2 Timothy 2.21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for good works. Implied in that is that those who don't do such things are not fit, are not worthy, Number 10, the very length of our lives might be endangered. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 11, as he is teaching the church instructions on the Lord's Supper, that some who have come, some believers who have come to the table in an unfit matter, not matter, not exa- examining themselves, not repenting from sin, they have come with bitterness in their heart, they have come with any number of things in their heart. Paul says, that's why some of you are sick and some of you have what? fallen asleep, died. Number 11, the testimony of the church is damaged. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that sin defiles the church. Again, as these leaders one after another have fallen, many in in such public ways, what's the result of that? What does the unbelieving world do with that in relationship to the church of Jesus Christ? Bring shame on the church. Ultimately, then, God is dishonored. God is dishonored. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. God's holy name is blasphemed by an unbelieving world when it sees Christians sin. 
But even when no one else knows, even when you think no one else sees, God sees. And God is dishonored every time. Every time we sin. Oh, friends, that should be a horrifying concept to us. As we read the whole scope of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we see the primary thing that God is concerned about is upholding the glory of his name. That we would do something. That we would do something dishonoring to the Lord. Ought to grieve us deeply. It's no wonder. It's no wonder then that the true believer hates sin and battles against the flesh. It is no wonder in light of all of this that the believer would cry out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And just when we might feel like that's all there is to be said and we are overwhelmed with despair, that's the end of the statement. I'm a terrible sinner. I'm bound to sin in my whole life. Just when we might be despaired, we're about to turn a glorious corner in verse 25. Because when Paul cries this out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? He knows the answer to his question. Before he even cries this out, he knows the answer to his question. He knows who had delivered him and he knows who would deliver him. He had been delivered from the domination of sin, from the condemnation under sin, and he knows who the one who would deliver him ultimately from this body of sin was. He says in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. After all that Paul has said about this battle with sin, why is he not in despair? It's because he knows who Jesus is. It's because he knows what Jesus has done. That changes everything. It changes everything for Paul. It changes everything for us. He is the one who can deliver us from this intense war with sin. So we need to look to him and not despair. If, if all of this is true of us and we look to ourselves, there's nothing there but despair. We must look to him. We need to understand, though, when this full deliverance from sin is going to come. Complete deliverance from sin is not going to come in this lifetime. We are in this battle to the very end. It's only at our final glorification that we will be finally free from sin. That's why we sing that great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We sing, Oh, that day when freed from sinning. Steve Lawson says, In justification, God dealt with the penalty of sin. In sanctification, he's dealing with the power of sin. But in glorification, he will deal with the very presence of sin. What a glorious day that will be. But until then, we must continue to wage war in our battle with sin. So just briefly here in closing, how do we wage war against sin, the sin that's warring against us as believers? First, we must hate our sin. We must not coddle our sin. We must not excuse it or minimize it. It's far more deadly than going home and finding out there's a poisonous viper let loose in your house somewhere and you don't know where. Going, ah, we'll be fine. I think I'll just go to bed tonight. Kids, it's fine. You can camp out here in the living room. 
Oh, sin is far more deadly than that. It must be hunted down. It must be put to death daily. So Jesus said, we, we must take up our cross daily and follow him. In other words, we must die every single day to ourselves. We must put to death the deeds of the flesh every day. You, Christian, you have to hate your sin. Don't make excuses for it. Second, we must confess our sin. You, you, you can't just say that you hate your sin. You must acknowledge it to God as evil, treasonous, rebellion committed against him. We must take a responsibility for our sins against God and agree with him about the sinfulness of the deeds of our flesh. Third, then we must repent of our sins. We must turn away from them. We must renounce them. These sins that we confess, we must abandon, renounce, reject. Any true confession must include repentance or it's not true confession. We must turn from sin. Deep sorrow must fill our hearts regarding our sin. And as that happens, we're going to increasingly choose the path of obedience. Again, not perfectly in this life. If you're not a believer, perhaps a better way to phrase that is if you've not submitted your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because you might go, oh, I believe I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I believe all that stuff the Bible says. Now, if you've not submitted your life, if you've not bowed your knee before him, do you long to be free from sin? Do you long to know peace and contentment? There is a way. There is a way out of the despair of having the story end at wretched man that I am. But there's only one way out of that. There's only one way out of that. It is the grace of God through the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, though he was tempted in every way just as we are, without ever giving in to that temptation, even one time, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and there for all who trusted in him placed his perfect righteousness upon us. So at the end of my life, when I stand before the throne of a holy God, the judge of all the universe, his view of me is not going to be the same view Paul has of himself right here in this passage. He's not going to look at me and say, wretched man that you are. Good thing I'm gracious. No, no, no. Well done. Good and faithful servant. There's only been one good and faithful servant and those who trust in him are credited with his perfection. What a glorious salvation this is. You can come to him right now. You can receive that right now. It's not just an offer, it's a command. You must come to him. You must bow your knee to him. Come to him and know the sweetness of forgiveness and grace. Come to him and know the peace that hope, true hope, brings. Even in the midst of the struggles of this life, come to Jesus. He is more than enough. And believers, that's the message we need. Come to him day after day as you wage war with the flesh, as you wage war with sin in the battles of this life, in the struggles of this life. Come to him. He is more than enough. Amen? Let's pray together.
Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beauty of your gospel. Sinners like us, sinners like the Apostle Paul, with no hope of righteousness to be found within ourselves, can look to Christ, can run to Christ and find him there with open arms, find him there ready to receive us, ready to give life to us, ready to give in exchange for our guilt and condemnation, his perfect righteousness. Lord, may we run to Jesus, even right now in this moment. May we run to him daily, and I do pray especially for those who are hearing my voice that don't know you, in particular those who think they do. I pray by your spirit, Lord, you would convict them of sin. Place your finger right directly on their sin. Let them know of their great need for salvation and then lift their eyes to Christ by your spirit. Give to them the gift of repentance. Give to them the gift of faith. Cause them to trust in your son and be saved. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, your astounding grace and your might that you are able to, able to save. We rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.